You might not have put two and two together or realize that this podcast, it's actually produced by a nonprofit, listener-supported Wyoming Public Media. We're just a little old station housed in a basement on the beautiful University of Wyoming campus. We aren't getting paid big bucks as a for-profit business. No siree, we're making this podcast not for money, but because everyone on our team believes in what we do, telling the missing stories of the real American West. But that means we rely on people like you. If you make sure to download every episode as soon as it comes out, or have been telling all your friends what a big Modern West fan you are, or would be seriously bummed if we disappeared from your feed, If all that describes you, I wonder if you'd take a quick minute to do something for me. Get into your browser and search for themodernwest.org and find the donate button. It doesn't matter how much you commit to, $5 or $100. It just matters that you show us that you want us to keep telling these stories. My recommendation? Pause this episode and do it real quick before you forget at themodernwest.org. So far this season, we've been hearing a lot about how problematic cows are. The U.S. government killed millions of bison to make room for them. They overgraze and pollute our landscapes. They burp, they fart. And it's really hard to raise a lot of them humanely. At this point, all these troubles are accumulating. And it really doesn't fit the romantic image we have of cowboys starts to feel like all our favorite Western TV shows and movies, they're hoodwinking us. Like, who is this cowboy character, really? One big issue is that the Hollywood version of the cowboy doesn't give any credit to the ranchers working to reinvent themselves in the American West. The folks living and working on the land who totally recognize all these problems with cows for what they are, and who are getting creative about what to do about it. Is a net-zero carbon cow really possible? They don't know, but these are women and men willing to try to adapt to a rapidly changing world, even if it means reinventing the old mystique of the cowboy. To do that, they're studying the land management techniques of the indigenous peoples who originally thrived in the American West and adapting it for a new era of climate change. One example, the holistic ranching movement a new method of managing cattle that mimics the natural way bison once roamed across the arid west. From Wyoming Public Media and PRX, this is The Modern West, exploring the evolving identity of the American West. I'm Melody Edwards. It's a blustery winter day at the foot of Sheep Mountain in the Laramie Valley of southern Wyoming. And all this wind is really mussing up the hairdos of the herd of cattle grazing under the cottonwoods. Their long, reddish fur swirls around, getting in their eyes. Their owner, Bridger Rarden, says these are definitely not your typical Herefords. What we found is we are using Scottish Highland cows crossed. That's, these, that, that's those guys? That's the horned, hairy yeah. horned ones. Yeah, those fuzzy looking guys. And we have been crossing them with uh, Galloway and Black Angus bulls oh, um, okay. to kind of fit more of a commercial side of the market that we have to play into and 
I love the Scottish Highlanders, but they're slower growing. They're also feisty. Bridger gets them all riled up with a call and answer. Brownie, Angie, here it goes. <laughs> they know their names? They know two of them. Don't, no, we don't name our cows. <laughs> we do, though, sometimes. Here it goes. This breed of cattle originated in the rainy, cold highlands of Scotland, and that makes them hardy enough to live year-round here in this valley at over 7,500 feet, where the winters, as you can hear, can get a little rough. Bridger runs this herd with his dad, Tom. But this land where the cattle are grazing right now doesn't belong to them. It's leased from landowners who aren't interested in raising livestock themselves. They lease it to ranchers like the Rairdens for the tax write-off, Tom says, since agricultural land gets zoned in a better bracket than the cabin-slash-second-home bracket. Like this property here, several of the properties we lease have always been in agriculture, but they sent out letters and said, well, you have to show that you either bring in $1,000 or you can produce $500 to maintain your ag status. So we've been invited to bring the cows there to help them get their ag status back. It's a symbiotic relationship, since the Raritans couldn't possibly afford to buy land these days. They say the cost of ranch land has gone up over 10% in the last few decades. We run on all lease land, and that's kind of the model that we've taken on just because land prices are too too high for anyone to... they want to get into agriculture, uh, they, they better have a good trust fund or a, a high-paying job for 20 years and a good pension. But it wasn't so long ago that the Raritan family owned lots of land just on the other side of this mountain. Tom's dad grew up in Laramie, moved away for a career working for the FBI, but then retired back home. And at that point, that's when they bought a ranch on the other side of Sheep Mountain, on the, the front side. Oh, yeah, uh-huh. And he, my dad then started a, a sheep operation on that ranch and uh, ran sheep for about 25 years. You know, I was part of that growing up. That was until the Forest Service stopped giving out grazing leases for sheep in these mountains because they were spreading pneumonia to wild bighorn sheep. We were down to probably, oh, 200 head or so a, a sheep, and it just wasn't economically viable. My grandparents were aging. Uh, my dad had a job in town at that point and kind of made a family decision to sell that ranch. And the whole family then moved into town. And But Tom kept a few of their cows on a friend's property. One day, he came to Bridger and said, Hey, son, how about let's go into business together? Bridger did have some savings. I went out and bought uh, my first 10 head of cows back in 2019. Or, no, 2015, mm-hmm. sorry. Yeah. From there, that's when him and I went into business together. Mm-hmm. And we've just been trying to figure out how to make it work. They dreamed big at first. Initially, we were going to take the Earl Butts route, who was the ag 
secretary under President Nixon where it was go big or go home. And that's what we kind of were trying to do. But for two, what did that mean to you? That meant that we needed to be a thousand head or more, um, essentially, and, and running at a scale that could uh, ideally pay a fair wage to two people. Agricultural Secretary Earl Butts transformed our farm system back in the 1970s from a family farming system to a corporate food production system. It allowed the U.S. to go big with agriculture on a world stage, but it also made it hard for the little guy to survive. And it's gotten even harder in the last decade or so. That's when the big four meat packers, Cargill, Tyson, JBS, and National Beef, started gobbling up all of the smaller slaughterhouses. It's had big implications for small producers like the Raritans. They've all oligopolized and monopolized, and that is what is really creating a very unjust, unfair system within, I think in the 70s, you know, 70% of a dollar made in the cattle industry was broken up between the cow-calf producer, the grower, the backgrounder, and the feedlot operator. And now that has flipped where about 70, 75% of that dollar goes to the four major companies and the other 25% is left between the the cow-calf producer, the feedlot operator. And that disparity has only worsened with the pandemic. Cassandra Fish, she's an executive with Tyson. She says, yes, COVID-19 did reveal cracks in the system. But she says, sadly, there's no turning back. The only answer is to embrace the Earl Butts vision. Get even bigger or get out. And that means building even more slaughterhouses, whether big or small. I don't have a, my solution is a long-term solution, and that is add capacity and get the, and get money, which will create more competition for cattle prices and get more money in the value chain back down to the cattle feeder, the stocker, and the rancher. And that's, that's my, that's really my solution. I don't have another one, um, but you're absolutely right. This is not good. It's, it's not, it's not a healthy fair economic subset here, the the beef industry. It it is not. It's a trickle-down solution that leaves small ranchers high and dry until the whole global industry can grow. Even Cassandra acknowledges that the system is stacked against small operations like the Raritans. That's why Tom and Bridger say they realized they could never reach that goal of a thousand head of cattle. And after a while, they weren't really sure they wanted to. They agreed with folks like agrarian thinker and poet Wendell Berry, whose book The Unsettling of America was a revolt against Ag Secretary Butts's idea of get big or get out. Barry says it's a travesty that the history of rural America involved a mass exodus of farmers and ranchers, leaving land health in the hands of the wealthy few. That they left because they couldn't make a living is an indictment of our land policies. The idea that you have to go somewhere else, that you have to leave a fertile country in order to make a living is preposterous. And 
It's a result of the wrong idea of what we mean by making a living in the first place. To make a living is not to make a killing. It's to have enough. The Raritans came to deeply agree with that and adjusted their goals. These days, they just want to make enough to be part of the solution, not the problem. We kind of came to this type of management um, because we feel that it's better for the environment and that it is overall how, how we're going to maybe address aspects of, of climate change and, and uh, try to create something that is actually a sustainable model moving forward. So they started poring over books and experimenting with a new approach to cattle management that did things very differently from the older generation of ranchers. People call it regenerative or holistic ranching. Earlier this season, we heard about how bison improve the health of the land by churning and replanting the soil. This method trains cattle to replicate bison. What they end up doing is all that urine and manure, all that gets trampled in and incorporated with all this other grass that doesn't get eaten and gets trampled in. And that actually then supplies the you know, nutrients and spreads water and out onto the land to an extent. And then you have the, the, where the rest period comes into play. In that system, when bison were grazing, they wouldn't be back there for maybe a year, maybe three years, maybe five years. But it, that's what allows that recovery time. But conventional ranching doesn't offer that recovery time. Whereas holistic ranching keeps the cows moving like they would if they were living in the wild. Cattle aren't bad, sheep aren't bad. It's all how you manage the sheep and cattle. You know, we want to get on there, graze as fast as possible. You know, you want to allow for the longest period of recovery possible. So you get on, graze what, what you need, and, you know, we try to usually, unless we come into a pasture like this that has um, not been grazed for a long time, we, we try to leave, you know, about 50% of the grass. Bridger points out at the pasture we're standing in, at the taller, gray-looking grasses. Cows are like little kids. They think of these as the kale on their plate and leave them to eat last. He wants them to eat a wider variety of grasses so they don't choice out their favorites, eating those down until they can't grow back. He says that's when overgrazing happens. Some of the, what we're trying to entice them to do is some of the more oxidizing grass. You can see where they really just haven't grazed as much. Yeah. They, they kind of choiced out the species they really like. Oh, interesting, yeah. That's what we it's are, kind of balder right here. Mm -hmm. But over there I can see some stuff bl blowing in the wind. Exactly, and we're trying to, this right, like this time of year, we're using protein licks to kind of supplement some protein so they can go out and digest that harder to, uh, you know, that more lignified grass and huh, whatnot. Interesting, yeah. Because it's winter, Bridger wants the cattle to eat all the kinds of grasses, even if it means providing a nutrition supplement to get them through until spring. A conventional rancher would let them eat the same plants over and over as they struggle to try to grow back. In a couple weeks, they'll get the cattle off this pasture and leave them off so these grasses can fully regenerate. The key is to get cows eating lots of species of grasses, but to take only one bite per plant. 
That's one thing that you really want to prevent is that second bite onto that plant that's trying to recover. And that plant can start recovery within three days of being grazed. And so, you know, the typical, what a lot of ranchers end up doing is, you know, they, they might turn them out in a pasture and they're there for three months. But what ends up happening over time, and this is where overgrazing occurs, is they are not necessarily overgrazing the pasture, but they're overgrazing specific plants. Because each time that choice candy plant comes back up, those animals are going to go back and take that second bite. And then, you know, two, three bites later, that plant might die or it's going to be in a kind of state of you know, degradation that it's not going to be able to come back up next year with the same amount of biomass because it wasn't able to put any energy into its root reserves or whatnot. To keep cattle from coming back when their favorite candy plant is regrowing to get a second bite, the Raritans move their cows often, unlike conventional ranching, which leaves cows on pastures for months. After we visit the herd, Bridger and Tom head off to the next pasture, where they plan to move their cows. Tom notices that even though it's cold and wintry, there's green grass laced in among the gray. He crouches down to show me. This gray here, yeah. that's oxidized. What we want is to get, you know, we want them to eat this and the, whatever green's in there. Yeah. And then we want them to tromp that and put it into contact with that soil. With that soil, get it down, because yeah. it's kind of, it's so tall that it's not being able to get down and start to To really break decompose down. it. Yeah. Right Some places you can hardly tell that we've even grazed. You would have no idea that we grazed. You just have that, that grass is now not in that oxidizing state. It's actually sequestering carbon, you know. The energy is being stored in those root reserves. And then, you know, the next year when that plant's grazed, you're gonna get some root sloughing and whatnot, and ideally that's going to then lend itself to some carbon sequestration. Sequestration because grasses like these store carbon above the ground in their stalks and leaves, but mostly below ground in their root systems and in the soil itself. There's a groundswell of people saying that regenerative ranching techniques can increase the amount of this carbon sequestration in the land, potentially making a zero-carbon cow viable. But some people are pretty skeptical that regenerative ranching can store enough carbon that it would actually make more of a difference than conventional ranching to compensate for all those burps and farts. You remember Mike Grunewald a couple episodes back? the climate and food guy, he says the science is still out on this. He wrote a story about the former presidential candidate Tom Steyer and his regenerative ranch, the Tomcat in California. Tomcat Ranch was using an awful lot of land to support relatively few cows and without storing any measurable additional carbon. Uh, so that was pretty disappointing, especially since these regenerative techniques really require you know, a lot of labor and a lot of money, which of course Tom Steyer can afford. But if the idea is that ordinary ranchers are going to adopt these techniques and that it's going to create some sort of climate solution, even a zero carbon cow, um, there's really no evidence at Tomcat Ranch or pretty much anywhere at this point that, uh, that you're gonna see those kind of spectacular gains. 
I did come across a recent study that showed a zero-carbon cow was possible in Georgia. But that's not the high plains in Wyoming. Bridger concedes that there's still more to learn about whether the benefits are as dramatic on western landscapes. You know, there's a lot of uh, back and forth in the academic world on, you know, how effective grazing is for um, carbon sequestration, especially in the west. I think it's definitely is happening in more midwestern, eastern states. In the west, it's a little different. I think it's Rather than it being more based off the carbon cycle, it's more based off the water cycle and just nutrient cycling in general. Um, you know, you're, we're trying to put high quantities and high densities of urine and manure down and spread, you know, if they're drinking water from this creek, that's actually taking that water from the creek and getting it out there in a much more um, plant available form oh, for other nutrients like nitrogen and um, ammonium and whatnot. And then- Because otherwise this water that's flowing right by this is just only flowing here, mm -hmm. whereas if they drink it and then they pee over there. The, yeah, and you kind of get to inoculate each little spot where they pee or poop with, uh, you know, some nutrients that water doesn't normally have that, you know, the animal provides through its own system. And then also you have a high amount of microbial um, populations in the cow's gut that then also gets to be spread out and gets to be incorporated into that soil. We're going to talk a lot more about how ranchers can help the climate by healing the water cycle later this season. But even if this management style isn't the cure-all, it still is a big improvement on conventional methods. The thing is, cows aren't adapted to live in an arid place like the West. But maybe holistic ranching could help them adapt. For instance, the Raritans don't let their cows graze on the whole length streams. That leads to water pollution and ruins wetlands where carbon could get stored. But Bridger says, managed properly, livestock pee and poop can be beneficial for the West's thin, nutrient-poor soils. And this concept isn't something an isolated group of ranchers are espousing. It's gaining traction worldwide. That's when we return. If you are liking what you're hearing, and actually, hey, even if you don't, we would love to hear about it. Take a moment right now to leave a rating or review on your podcast app. It'll help new listeners discover the modern West so that we can keep bringing you stories about the evolving identity of the American West. Hey, thanks, y'all. I sat down with Judith Schwartz, the author of Cows Can Save the Planet. Judith is a warm, smiling woman, and that's because while the rest of us mostly see only doom for the future, she has hope that things are fixable, that humans can change their behaviors. She has reason to believe this, too. She's traveled the world over, talking to livestock producers using holistic management techniques. What she's learned is that grazing animals naturally are kept moving by predators, whether it's lions with water buffalo in Africa or wolves with caribou in the Arctic. When a predator approaches, herds naturally bunch up. That's how they protect themselves. And then they flee en masse and they trash the land. And what they're doing is many things. So they are pressing in seeds so that a diversity of plants have the chance to germinate, especially higher order animal dependent grasses 
that are very deep rooted grasses. They are pressing down the decaying plant matter so that that can be broken down and incorporated into the soil, enriching the soil with carbon, which is hugely important. But across the West, there aren't enough predators to do that job anymore. In fact, Judith says humans are doing something completely opposite. So in nature, plants are stationary, okay? Plants like stay in the same place and animals move. But we've created a situation where animals are stationary, you know, animals are in these feedlots and, you know, in one place and we bring plants to them. So the plants are moving. This is something that requires so much energy and equipment and moving around of resources when the resources that the animals need are right where they are. Judith says we need to find a way back to the natural order of things. One way to visualize that order is to imagine livestock as middle management. They are middle management. Humans are upper management. Plants are lower management. And the workers are the, is the, the microorganisms. So I think that's really, really helpful when you're thinking about what are you managing for on a landscape that you want your micro your workers the microorganisms to be happy and productive and then the plants will be will flourish and then when the plants are flourishing the cattle will flourish and then when you know all the way up the chain Judith says if the microbes are plentiful they'll actually consume a lot of the methane produced by cattle But remember that soil I witnessed in the red desert on the feed line? The white, hard pan stuff? No microbes to devour methane there. Judith says it's time to adopt livestock management strategies that return us to Mother Nature's way of doing things. I think it's worth understanding that droughts are man-made. And floods are man-made. So... If we have healthy soil, which ranchers through their management can help to build, then that soil is a sponge and can help absorb a lot of water so that you don't have floods. Because if if the soil is absorbing water, it makes it very difficult to make a flood happen. But that means getting ranchers to practice this kind of livestock management across the landscape, not just one ranch here, one ranch there. I met someone who's witnessing that. And it's in an area that's way more arid than the Rocky Mountains. Alejandro Carrillo grew up in a ranch in the Chihuahuan Desert of Mexico, but went to work in the U.S. When his dad turned 70, he asked his son to come home. And actually, I was waiting for that moment. So I joined the ranch, and I was very fortunate to be in a state in Mexico, the state of Chihuahua, where there were very good holistic management practitioners. So it was probably the destiny that actually I was very fortunate to meet my mentors. And I started learning from them. We started traveling. We started reading, traveling, and to the states and other countries and other continents. Now, Alejandro is a vocal advocate for regenerative ranching. It might sound crazy, 
When you think of Chihuahua, you're probably visualizing cactus and sand as far as the eye can see. But Alejandro says, The historic record paints a very different picture of Chihuahua, pre-European contact. There used to be, based on the written documentation from the Spaniards that were the first white people coming in, and the priests were the ones that actually were putting those records. And they said that it was pretty much a, a, a sea of grassland uh, with plenty of wildlife. They said that in Chihuahua, we have plenty of beavers, many of beavers and otters all across the state. A sea of grass and enough water for beaver and otters. It's an image he aspires to return to. And with his mentors, Alejandro is getting lots of other Mexican ranchers excited about regenerating the land, too. The Mexican government even paid to host several regenerative ranching workshops in Chihuahua. No, probably just in Chihuahua, we have have like a million hectares or over two million acres of land being regenerated, mostly in ranching. Uh, Farming is really not there yet, but ranching is really very, very good. I've seen photos of Alejandro standing up to his armpits in native grasses on his family's ranch. He says conventional ranchers only have a handful of grass species on their land. He has over 50 species of perennial grasses. He says all that grass keeps any rain that does fall from evaporating. Conventional ranching? Mm, Not so much. When you get, let's say, three-inch precipitation, pretty good rain, right, for a dry environment. On conventional ranchers, you're only getting 20% of that water infiltrated into the land. So you're talking about only half an inch. So let's say that they keep that half an inch. But because the soil is so compacted, lack of air in the soil and layers of uh, uh, like plated soil, that the, the water just infiltrates just an inch. Let's say that the air temperature could be 90 degrees, right? If you measure the soil temperature, it will be 150 degrees. Think about that multiplied to millions of acres. So you pretty much lose all the all the uh, moisture that you have versus the ranch under good adaptive grazing management where you have grass, instead of this all being at outside temperature, 90 degrees, it will be like 85. So we are creating the drought. No, I have no doubt about it. But Alejandro says that means that ranchers also have the power to create the opposite of drought, rain. Now, think about it when you're walking, it's pretty hot, and suddenly it gets clouded. I mean, you have like a refreshing, right, sense, saying, oh my God, this is so cool. So many times we think that vegetation is the first line of defense to keep the soil cool. Well, it's actually the clouds, the first line of defense. So we as ranchers have a huge, huge uh, obligation and, and responsibility to, to generate more, more clouds. But in order for, for us to do that, when we, we need actually uh, to have more, more, more cover, more perennial grasses. Alejandro says in Chihuahua, because more ranchers are bunching and moving their cattle often, the region has more thick grasses, and he sees more rainfall because of that. example, in my ranch, that is 30,000 acres, we're seeing more rain there already. 
And then I have about five degree difference between my ranch and my and neighboring ranches. So we are creating that. And unfortunately, nature is really very benevolent when we work with her, but has no mercy when we work against her. Maybe this sounds a lot like the delusional thinking of those early pioneers who promised that God would ensure that rain would follow the plow. Except this time, it isn't about plowing. It's about the science of how taller, healthier grass slows evaporation and puts more moisture in the atmosphere. This is all emerging stuff, and research is still racing to catch up. But for the Raritans, they aspire to be part of this new range-wide effort to heal the water cycle. Bridger recently finished an internship to learn more holistic management strategies in a mentorship program called the Kavira Coalition that's much like the one in Chihuahua. And they've banded together with other ranchers in this valley to market their meat directly to consumers. They get all their beef processed at 307 Meats, the place we visited last time. And that means they get to put the name of their ranch on their label and can sell it across state lines. But Bridger recognizes that he and his dad are pioneers in an entirely new sense of the word. And not a lot of ranchers are risk takers like them. You know, I think there's a lot of good, a lot of ranchers out there that manage fairly conventionally and it's still pretty good management overall, but it would be nice to see more people taking this on. And it is growing. There are more and more people shifting this way and, um, you know, I think a lot of it is every rancher, I think, wants to take care of their land. They just, at times, it's there's so much information out there. Um, you know, what do you what do you choose to listen to, and what do you what do you uh, choose to do with you, within your own management? Yeah. And I think change is hard, but you kind of have to embrace change yeah. as well. And that's what the Raritans are doing: embracing change, one pasture at a time. On part seven of The Great Individualist, we'll visit a family ranch in eastern Colorado that's practicing holistic ranching, but they're going one step further. They're part of a program to offer carbon offsets for conserving their ranch land. When you proposed this idea, how did Dallas respond? Well, um, (laughs) just like with with most landowners, I have to take a lot of time to, to try to explain this stuff. I'm passing over the mic to reporter Birch Malotke for that story. Are you a rancher that's switching to a more holistic livestock management style? Tell us about the challenges you've faced and the rewards. Visit us on social media at Modern West Pod or email me at themodernwestpod at gmail.com. I'm Melody Edwards. Tennessee Watson is our story editor. Our sound designer is Charles Fournier. Noah Greenspan is assistant producer. Anna Rader is our marketing coordinator. Thanks also for help from Sarah Ann Leverett and Diane Berner. To see Anna Castro's photographs of Tom and Bridger Rairdon and their Scottish Highlanders, go to our website at themodernwest.org. You can find out more about the Rairdon Ranch at tasteofthewind.com. Our theme song is by Screen Door Porch. The Modern West is a production of PRX and Wyoming Public Media. One of our goals is to get a dialogue flowing about the stories that we're telling. We're hoping that you'll join the conversation. 
So connect with us on social media and let us know what your thoughts are, whether you agree with what you're hearing or not. We're at Modern West Pod on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter. That's Modern West Pod.